Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Over the course of our season together, we've looked at a range of risks and management strategies. Sometimes the COVID-19 pandemic has been central to the discussion, while in other episodes, it's just been lurking in the background. For this final episode of season one of At Risk, I'm joined by Dan Gardner, New York Times bestselling author of books about psychology and decision-making. We explore head-on how best to gather the hard-won lessons of this challenging pandemic period and the psychological barriers to following through on them in the long term. Should we focus our efforts on preparing for the next pandemic alone? Or would we as a nation be wise to also try to prepare for all of the low probability, high consequence events that are largely knowable, but whose precise timing is difficult to pinpoint? Human psychology is potent, but it's not determinative. With intention and purpose, we could strive to identify and apply a broader set of lessons in order to become and stay prepared for more than just the next pandemic. To put it in the terms of the central question of this podcast, is investing in preparations for the array of low probability, high consequence events that threaten our progress the best way for us to truly honor what we've been through and to value what we've built as a country. Thank you for joining me, Dan, and welcome to At Risk. Glad to be here. So, Dan, what is the tombstone mentality, and why is it so hard for us humans to break free from it? Yeah, the tombstone mentality, that very evocative term, comes from aviation, and it comes from a a, a time many decades ago when aviation was uh, dangerous, (laughs) which it it really isn't today. Uh, But the tombstone mentality essentially means uh, it's seeing problems ahead, seeing risks, and not doing anything about them until somebody dies. Then, of course, you act. Um, And when you think about the that dynamic and you look at human history you discover that the tombstone mentality abounds (laughs) i mean it is astonishing the number of instances in which that dynamic appears probably the most dramatic was in fact in aviation um for most of the first 40 or 50 years of the history of aviation uh there basically was no regulation of aviation you could just jump in a plane and off you fly uh, for the very simple reason that the sky was big and there weren't many planes and you were probably safe if you did that. Well, relatively safe. You wouldn't crash into other people. You'd probably, uh, you, you might crash your plane because your plane was crappy. But, <laughs> but aside from that, uh, you were probably safe. Um, but of course, after the Second World War, aviation starts to change pretty rapidly and dramatically. Basically, what happens is you have civil aviation truly taking off. You have huge numbers of airlines launching flights and so the number of planes in the air and coming into land at landing strips increases at an incredible rate and people looked at that and they said to themselves well <laughs> this is a this is a problem uh, it is just a matter of time if you keep throwing up 
you know, uh, 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 pinballs into the air uh, and you keep increasing the number of pinballs, it's just a matter of time before two of those pinballs hit each other. Uh, and in this case, the pinballs contain people, so people will die. So we have to get out ahead of this. And people said, you know what we need? We need radar at the airfields, and we need ground controllers, and we need a federal regulator to create regulations to uh, coordinate all of this stuff to maximize safety, a, a federal aviation authority, if you will. And so this was all well understood. And of course, it's pretty hard to argue against that because it's perfectly obvious that it's true that there is a need for that regulatory apparatus. But of course, what happens? And the answer is nothing. Uh, it's just the number of planes keeps keeps growing, keeps growing, until in 1956, two passenger jets collided in midair, killing 126 people. And at that point, boom, just like that, you had the cre creation of the Federal Aviation Authority, the FAA. You had the inst and, and the creation of all the regulations that went went with it. So you had radar. And you have ground controllers and you have all that apparatus, which is absolutely essential to uh, aviation safety today. So that's one instance of it. But there are so many others that are like just in hindsight, it's stunning when you really think about it. Another simple one is 9-11 uh, uh, itself. I just stick with the aviation theme. I mean, I could go into all sorts of other fields, but but to stick with the aviation theme, 9-11. Um, in the 1990s, there were aviation safety experts who said, you know what? It's really just a matter of time before terrorists try and hijack a plane and crash it, deliberately crash it. No one had done that before, um, but they thought this is going to happen. And they said, well, there's a simple way to stop that. You know, we can order planes to close and lock the cockpit doors when the plane is in flight. But of course, it's not enough to do that because the doors are sort of flimsy. They have to be reinforced with steel. And uh, they had good reason for thinking this, right? This wasn't pure speculation. In fact, there was a terrorist, a, a terrorist scheme to hijack a plane and crash into the Eiffel Tower was in fact broken up. Uh, and there were some other incidents and this was leading aviation experts to this conclusion. Um, and so they said, you know, we really need to change the regulations to, 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 to do this. Um, and basically, when you reinforce cockpit doors, that makes them a little bit heavier, a little bit heavier doors, consumes a little bit more fuel, that means they're a little bit more expensive. Uh, the uh, airlines refused. The airlines fought back and they said no. Um, and they went to their political allies and they managed to stymie this regulatory change. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 happens, and guess what? Within 30 days, all the airlines had closed and reinforced uh, their cockpit doors. And in fact, President Bush congratulated the airlines for moving so rapidly on the problem. Um, I, again, I could go on and on. There are just so many examples like this. But the key point is that in every case, they're not situations where you have to be a dazzlingly brilliant forecaster to foresee the threat, right? Yeah. It's pretty darned obvious. Uh, if you think about it at all. Um, but we just don't act until the thing actually manifests itself and then you then you suffer. And by the way, I should back up and mention, in regard to the pandemic, uh, again, while I am very mindful, I'm very, very mindful of hindsight bias and, and, and the mistake of thinking that things were more obvious than they were in the past. 
it is not a question of hindsight bias to say that the pandemic was perfectly foreseeable. Um, if, if, if all you knew about public affairs came from TED Talks, you <laughs> knew that a pandemic was essentially inevitable because you saw Bill Gates give a TED Talk in which he said so. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, even though you can't forecast it in any particular one year because it's an extremely low probability event, if you have an extremely low probability event year after year after year after year, it is quite literally just a matter of time. Um, and so, and so we can add that one to the list. Um, you know, what, why were governments caught flat footed when it was quite literally inevitable that something like this would happen is a pretty yeah, amazing question. So, so then you start to ask yourself, well, what's going on here? And, and, and of course, I don't want to be reductionist about this. There are many, many factors going on, including organizational self-interest and all those good things, such as the, you know, as in the case of the airlines who are saying, you know, uh, we don't want to reinforce the doors because it would cost us a few bucks. You know, obviously that's organizational self-interest. Um, but I, re I think there's actually a far more fundamental driver going on, and that's psychology, which is basically this. When, if you think about the way that we naturally grapple with risks, the way that we judge what to worry about and what not to worry about, experience is absolutely fundamental to how we do it. Um, that thing which just happened, which just walloped you hard and you're still stinging from it, that's the thing that you are on high alert for. The thing which has never happened, you just don't pay attention to it. Um, and, I, you know, I can go into the, some of the mechanisms that lead to that conclusion. Uh, but if you think about it in evolutionary terms, it makes perfect sense. Um, in the environment in which our species lived throughout almost its entire history. Uh, again, bear in mind, we're living in an environment radically unlike the environment in which we live for most of our, uh, most of the history of our species. That's a key, key point. Um, in that ancient environment, in that Stone Age environment, it actually made sense to, you know, if something just got you, <laughs> look out for it again, right? So if 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 one of the fellow, you know, one of your fellow band members gets dragged to a screaming death by a lion emerging from the long grass, be on alert for lions, <laughs> right? That, that's that's good advice. That's that's sensible stuff. News you can use. <laughs> if you see somebody else slip and fall off a cliff edge, be alert uh, of that cliff edge, and so on. So, so over and over and over again, that makes a good, whole lot of sense. And if you see, if you, you know, if there's some, you know, if some somebody's speculating and they come up with some, they say, well, what about saber toothed tigers? And you say, what's a saber toothed tiger? Well, you probably shouldn't expend a lot of time thinking about that threat, right? So again, that works in that environment, but. Because it's it, 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 it's 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 the nature of what the risks that we were dealing with then, and it's also because of the information that was available to us. Basically, all that we had available to us was our own experience. Well, today we live a in an environment quite unlike that, and b we have very different information available to us. We have vastly more sophisticated information than our own immediate personal experience, uh, or even the experience of the community around us. Um, and so, for example, I'm going to use one of my favorite ex examples, um, solar flares. Uh, scientists know how solar flares work. They know what they are, and they know that if you get a particularly massive solar flare, um, it will have certain devastating effects on planet Earth. It will fry electronics globally. Um, it could, could easily inflict trillions of dollars in damage. 
and who know, do who knows what to infrastructure. We know that from science. Well, guess what? We don't know that from experience. Hmm. Um, because the last time a solar flare of that magnitude happened, it was 1859, I believe. Uh, it was an event called the Carrington event. Um, and in 1859, of course, we did not have a lot of electronics to get fried. Uh, we had telegraph lines that got fried, but, but we didn't have tons of others. And, and our societies weren't built on electronics as they are today. Um, so we know perfectly well, thanks to science, that there is a major threat there. And the scientists will say, by the way, just like pandemics, very, very low probability it's going to happen next year. Very low probability the next year after that, and so on. But you know what? If it's year after year after year, it is quite literally just a matter of time. So how much time and effort have governments put to saying, Ooh, we got to make ourselves resilient against this risk. Answer, zero. Like, as far as I know, no, it's just not on the radar. There's, there's no one particularly concerned with it. Um, and it's because primarily, again, there are many other factors. It's because primarily the psychology is the big driver of our risk perception. And the psychology is saying that hypothetical thing that the the scientists are talking about what the heck is that that doesn't that doesn't move me that doesn't feel like a threat ignore it we got more important things to talk about um and that's how you end up with the tombstone mentality once somebody dies once the bad thing actually manifests itself and people die then we feel the threat and we're really good at responding to the threats that we feel and so we act immediately after the horse leaves the burning barn so I want to clarify sort of by, or, or by contrast, kind of demonstrate, you know, how this mentality plays out. So the tombstone mentality, it's very different than like, you know, maybe making, um, uh, a risky or unpopular decision to self-insure or just accept the casualties that that's, that's not the tombstone mentality. The tombstone mentality is more to kind of kick the can down the road and then, and then lots of activity, but only once that, the, 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 the deaths, um, you know, have, have, you know, regrettably transpired. Exactly. So if you speak to anybody who works in disaster management, everything that I'm just saying will cause them to heave a world weary sigh. <laughs> because this is their daily life. Um, they constantly are saying, you know, there's this serious thing. We should be prepared for it. It's going to cost a few bucks to prepare for it. Please don't cut my budget. <laughs> uh, the budget gets cut. Um, and then the thing happens. And guess what? You drown in money. You get so much money, you don't know how to spend it. But of course, that only lasts for a while. Um, a after a time, the money, the spigot gets turned off once again, and then you're back and you, it's sort of a cycle, right? So you go from complacency to panic, to complacency, to panic. And the big problem is for our species, we find it very hard to find a sweet spot and stay in a sweet spot between complacency and panic. And of course, this mentality doesn't operate operate in total isolation, you know? So one of the things I was thinking about, I was like, okay, so is the tombstone mentality playing out in long-term care? And then I was like, actually, I don't think it is. Because if you look at, you know, for example, in Quebec, there was that heat wave and many lives were lost. And then 
um, you know, in Ontario, we, we, I'm not even sure if the ink was dried, you know, on, on a report about a serial killer, uh, working in the long-term care sector. And, you know, that then, you know, both provinces find themselves in this, you know, terrible situation, uh, where there's horrible loss of life in long-term care facilities, um, due to COVID-19, um, in both Ontario and Quebec. So, I'm like, is that tombstone mentality? Because, you know, there's still, you know, rooms in Ontario long-term care that don't have air conditioners. And there's still people in, um, in rooms, uh, you know, uh, multi-residential rooms. So, so, so maybe that's different. Maybe, maybe it's not tombstone mentality. Maybe that's just straight up ageism. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You know, let, let, let's not be reductionist here, right? There, there are many, many factors at work in human behavior in all cases, and particularly when you're talking about large-scale institutional changes like this and institutional policies, there's a lot going on. Um, and, and you know what? There are lots of instances in which, you know, you can foresee something bad happen, the bad happens, uh, and people shrug. <laughs> and, and and that that is a different problem uh, it's a very very sad problem but it is clearly it's 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 it is a different problem than than sort of the tombstone mentality um this is basically a problem where um it's one of inertia it's one on which people understand you know if you had said in advance you know is it important that we uh, prepare for a global pandemic? You don't actually have to convince anybody, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Thumbs up. That 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 is important. Um, but yeah, no, look, look, there's all sorts of other things that go on. One of the other, you know, I always my tendency, you know, I'm going to put my biases on the table. One of my tendencies, my biases, is towards staying with you know the psychological basics because I think these things really are fundamental. Um, and one of the basic elements of psychology is inurement. We get used to things. Hmm. Um, and so if you get used to the idea that, you know, uh, people in long-term care uh, die at an extraordinary rate, um, you can quite easily convince yourself that that is just a normal state of affairs and therefore you're, you're quite accepting of it. Um, it's, you know, it's quite similar to if I said to you, you know, uh, 5,000 people next year will die, uh, as a result of air crashes. Well, of course <laughs> that would be a five alarm fire. Whereas if we say 5,000 people will die as a result of car crashes, people shrug because, well, that's just a normal year, um, or, or whatever to use the numbers. I can't, I, I don't actually know what the Canadian number is for the total number of deaths in, in car crashes. Um, but the point is that inurement getting used to it uh, is another very, very basic psychological phenomenon. But that's, that is quite different than, than tombstone, uh, tombstone mentality. Okay. So uh, in a great piece in the hub, you talk about how like we're living the tombstone mentality right now. And you give the example of the March, 2021 um, funding announcement Um uh, for the Sanofi vaccine manufacturing plant uh, in Toronto. Um, to just explain to, to listeners how not only is that an example of the tombstone mentality, but it's kind of like 
tombstone mentality to the exponent too. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. It's deja vu all over again. And it's also, by the way, if I can make a plug for the value of history, it's also uh, uh, a, a powerful illustration of the importance of knowing your history because the history, history is not past. <laughs> history is what makes us today. History is right now. Um, so yeah, so the government announced that they were going to put money into Sanofi uh, in a facility in Toronto. Uh, and uh, some years down the road, this is going to allow Sanofi to expand the facility so that some years down the road, it becomes a major hub of vaccine manufacturing. Um, and in the event of some future pandemic, that means that Canada will have a domestic capacity for manufacturing vaccines. That is <laughs> obviously a great policy. I am thrilled that they're doing it. But yeah, need to know the history to realize how absolutely tragic that announcement was. And there wasn't nearly enough attention paid to that announcement. It was so unbelievably important. Um, the history is that the site, the very site that Sanofi is on was uh, once Connaught Laboratories. And Connaught Laboratories was created in the early 20th century by a University of Toronto professor who was responding to pandemics occurring in Canada, um, which were killing Canadians at a horrible rate, despite the fact that there were available uh, treatments and vaccines. Uh, They were available in the United States, but Canadians couldn't afford them or couldn't get them for various reasons. And this humanitarian fellow said, we need Canadian vaccine manufacturing capacity. They ended up creating Connaught Laboratories Cannot Laboratories did amazing work uh, over the years for decades, um, and and that's a Canadian uh, source of domestic vaccine manufacturing. Uh, but of course, by the time you get to the 1970s, the 1980s, pandemics and the threats of of you know some virus popping up and ravaging the land uh, starts to be starts to feel like one of those things is in the distant past it no longer starts to feel like an immediate threat right smallpox has gone away polio has come and gone uh, the influenza vac- uh, pandemic of 1918 was is ancient history and guess what happens well at that point it seems pretty reasonable that you would not laboratories why would we continue to fund that right uh, so it gets privatized um, and, and I suppose from that perspective and I'm, I'm not going to suggest otherwise you know I, don't, I, I wasn't I wasn't saying at the time don't do this <laughs> um, uh, but you know it, it, I'm sure it seemed like a reasonable thing to do well, the consequence of that was that we ended up not having domestic vaccine production capacity uh, when the big one came. Um, and so the announcement that the government made in March of this year was basically saying, oh, oops, we got rid of that preparedness. And now let's we're going to pay to get it back. Um, so, and by the way, I should back up and tell you, the uh, creation of Connaught Laboratories, the diseases that Connaught Laboratories was created to fight. I'll give you an example of what we're talking about. You know, diphtheria. Diphtheria is a disease which today, basically, nobody knows anything about. We don't know it in, in popular imagination. The only time you ever hear the word is when you take a baby to the doctor and the doctor says that the baby's going to get a shot for the following diseases and, and you'll hear the word diphtheria. That's why we don't know diphtheria because there are vaccines. And diphtheria is an absolutely horrific disease 
which mostly kills young children and it kills them basically by suffocating them. It basically creates a lining in their throat. It closes, they become unable to breathe. And for decades prior to the creation of the canal laboratories, Canadian parents had to sit and watch while their children suffocated to death. Just an absolute horror show. To give you an idea of the scale, uh, I believe it was over like 30 years prior to 1918, something like 36,000 children died, by, were killed by diphtheria in Ontario alone. So, so this was a horror, right? But And, and then, uh, of course, that was most of the world had just put up with this horror. But then, actually, uh, a vaccine, in fact, is developed. Well, guess what? There were many, many years in which it was only available in New York, right? Basically, if you were, if you were a Canadian parent, uh, an Ont- a parent in Ontario, and, you, and, you, and your child got diphtheria, uh, you could not treat this. You could not do anything about this unless you were wealthy enough to travel to New York City. Um, and, and that was the situation that they were dealing with by creating Connaught Laboratory. So it was really, truly a horror. Um, and, and the restoration of our capacity in this field um, is, that's why it's like a century-long testament to the power of the tombstone mentality to the power of uh putting priority on immediate experience over scientific knowledge when dealing with risks so when i read your piece and i um read this kind of breakdown of or this analysis of of you know the the sanofi announcement um it was very it was very intriguing to me and and really because I was like, oh, this is, you know, actually kind of an, at least an optimistic viewpoint on this funding announcement, because it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're investing in preparedness, because my reaction, and, you know, probably just revealing too much about myself at this point, but, but my reaction was like, oh, my God, here we go again, <laughs> preparing for the pandemic yep. that 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 already happened instead of the one that 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 you know will be coming uh because i feel so much of um so much of our situation is because we over prepared for a sars like event which was a hospital based uh outbreak situation with very little community transmission hence you know the number of ventilators uh, we had stockpiled made sense for a SARS-like event. We would have been very well prepared for that. But that's not what happened. And and pandemics always have their kind of own nuances, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a function of transmissibility and uh, is it is it airborne or is it fomite driven? Um, you know, and the particular people um, who are most vulnerable to it, right? Like in 1918, it was kids, you know, uh, this time around, you know, with COVID-19, it, it, it was older folks. But, but yeah, I was like, oh, great. So, so, so we're going to over invest now and kind of fill and finish for, <laughs> for vaccines when maybe the next one's going to be solved by therapeutics. Yep. Like maybe, maybe there won't be a vaccine solution. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, 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 the classic phrase is that generals are always fighting the last war. Right. Um, that that's that's actually shouldn't be taken as a criticism of generals. That should be taken as a criticism <laughs> of human beings. Right. Um, and, and this is a manifestation of the same psychology, right? You've just been whacked by something. What should you What should you be on alert for? The thing which just whacked you. 
Um, and, and so, of course, you know, my, my, my argument has always been uh, that at least for the first little while, I don't know how many years it's going to last, but at least for a while, we're going to be really prepared for pandemics. I'm not, sorry, I, I, to be more precise to your point, we're going to be really prepared for certain types of pandemics. <laughs> we're going to be prepared, really well prepared for what just happened. So my, my concern isn't so much that because that's human nature. We're going to, we're going to respond to what just happened. We're going to lock the barn door as the horse gallops away. Um, so the question I think we really desperately need to face is what can we do with this experience in order to better prepare for the surprises of the future so that we don't keep making the same mistakes so that we don't keep making these perfectly predictable mistakes um and that's really i i haven't seen people talking about this so much and, I, and i'm sure that we're going to get there maybe i'm just being a little bit premature but when we start talking about okay let's do the postmortems let us examine uh, what happened? Where was our preparedness? What were the events? How did people respond? What decisions were made? What was what what what, what were the mistakes? What what did we get right? And so on. When we're doing that post mortem, what I'm desperately hoping for is that we don't simply narrowly focus it on the current experience. That's not good enough. In fact, one of the things I'm worried about is that exactly what happened after in the United States and the 9-11 Commission, which is basically, it was narrowly focused only on that specific act of terrorism. How did we screw it up? Hmm. That's all they talked about. And as a result, basically, all it, they ended up doing primar primarily is enhancing an already exaggerated focus on what has already happened. Okay, so, you know, it, it, we could talk for years about what happened and how we could have done it better. And we should. That's really important. I don't want to dismiss that. But if we do that, we're again making the classic error of focusing just on looking at the thing which just whacked us. Yeah. What about the things that didn't just whack us? What other things are there out there that could whack us in the same way that COVID whacked us or in other ways? Um, and if we understand how, if we better understand how we made mistakes, how we screwed up on preparedness and whatnot in regard to COVID, how can we extrapolate those lessons so that we can deal more broadly with the array of low probability, high consequence threats that are out there. And that's really, to me, the big question. Let's not talk about just COVID-like pandemics. Let's not talk just about pandemics in general. Let's talk about low probability, high consequence events and preparing better for those. That has to be the frame. I'm desperately hoping that that is the frame because, frankly, if we don't get this right and frame the inquiry right and have a smart, thoughtful discussion now in response to something as enormous as the COVID pandemic, uh, we're never going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I, I enthusiastically uh, agree with you. Um, I was looking at um, uh, an article in Risk Management Magazine, you know, because I asked myself, well, well how is the private sector 
thinking about this? And, and is there an opportunity for the public sector to, to learn from the private sector? And, and the advice, uh, in that piece, uh, in risk management magazine was, you know, all the risk managers were saying to, you know, people who hold that responsibility inside large organizations, focus on the vulnerabilities of your organization. If you, uh, go to your CEO, um, and say, okay, we have to prepare for the next pandemic. Um, they're probably not going to give you much airtime. <laughs> if you go to your CEO and say, I think we have to really examine the vulnerabilities of the business, some of which have been highlighted by this pandemic, but there may be others that, that, that just haven't, you know, been brought out into relief. He said, then, then, you know, you might even get in front of the board. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting. That 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 that's a really great perspective. I mean, this is this is a this is why the framing mat. Well, I mean, this is one of many reasons why the framing mat. So so yeah, no. If I if I, if I say okay, let me give you a very specific instance. You know, a, a potential respiratory pandemic. You know, <laughs> let let us prepare for this. You're absolutely right. Uh, when people are dealing with day to day events and you're running around and you're so busy, and somebody's saying, "Well, it probably won't happen next year. Probably won't happen the year after that." But somewhere down the line, it's just a mathematical certainty that it will happen eventually. Right, right. You know, okay, I've got better things to talk about. But if, on the other hand, you say, "Look," Let's focus on and think about how to prepare for low probability, high consequence events as a category. Well, now you're talking about a huge array of things and you're talking about basic vulnerabilities. So supply chains, you mentioned supply chains as a classic example, right? Um, as we are now <laughs> exquisitely sensitive to this fact, uh, our supply chains, the wonderful thing about globalization is that it's all just in time, super connected, super complex. That's fantastic. The bad thing about globalization is that it's all just in time, super connected, because, of course, <laughs> it just takes one little disruption in that intricate web for it to ripple through and cause havoc. Okay? So... So if you say, let's talk about our vulnerability, and one of the things is supply chains, well, how could supply chains be disrupted? Oh, well, let's start a list, shall we? You know, yeah. I mean, there's just like an endless variety of them. Absolutely, because they depend on both communication and transportation. <laughs> there's a t like it's it, it's amazing, it's amazing. So, uh, but if, but if you, but if you start the problem that way, then you can start talking about okay, well, whatever the cause of the disruptions are, how do we make our supply chain more resilient in the face of the disruption? Well, now you're talking about something that uh, then becomes applicable across a wide array of risks. And so you don't actually have to convince people that, you know what, solar flares, it sounds like science fiction, but it's actually a significant threat and we really should pay attention. Um, you don't actually have to convince people of that. You just have to convince them that there are all sorts of, of, of low probability, high consequence events out there that we can't immediately predict, i.e. will it happen next year or not. Uh, and we, but we can make ourselves more resilient in the face of disruption caused by those. That's something which is a saleable proposition to people because that's, that, that's one where the psychology can grasp that uh, as opposed to saying, you know, as I say, solar flares being the classic example, you know, solar flares, please pay attention to them. They really actually do matter. It's not science fiction. 
So, so that's one example of, of, of how you can go about approaching, uh, you know, where, where the framing really matters and how you can go about approaching and getting people to take this stuff seriously. But, uh, but you know, th there, there are just so many others. And, 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 and I, I really think that the, that the key thing is that we have to recognize that we're on a, we're on a bit of a treadmill, right? You know, if, if you are of a certain age, if you have a little silver in your hair at this point, um, Yes, the pandemic was huge and shocking and incredibly important. And yes, we should talk about getting better prepared for it. But so was the meltdown of 2008. Yeah. And so was 9-11. And so was the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And, and it, there are a lot of these things out there. And, and the fact is, in, in, in an increasingly complex, increasingly interconnected world where any perturbation in the web can cause havoc anywhere else in the web in ways that are not immediately forecastable. In that world, you're going to be experiencing shocks like these a lot. Um, we need to start thinking a little bit more broadly and start thinking about, well, how do we prepare ourselves in general for low probability, high consequence events? And, and as I say, like, man, if COVID doesn't get people to smarten up and say, okay, you know what? We can't just deal with the immediate problem, the thing that just smacked us in the face. We've got to think more broadly. Um, and by the way, if I can just put a plug in for this, Royal Commission. I know those words are not popular in Ottawa, but if ever <laughs> there were a subject that is fit for a Royal Commission with serious money and a lot of time to do serious research, it is surely this one. So... I mean, so much great stuff there. You know, one of the questions I was asking myself, I was like, okay, a royal commission. I, I, I can't even remember what, what, what the last royal commission was <laughs> in Canada. I'm like, I remember the Massey one. Uh, I, you know, um, obviously there, there, there's been one on health and that's where we really started focusing on social determinants of health, sort of. Um, but, 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 but one of the questions I asked myself besides which was the last one was, okay, but, Part of what, you know, has kind of hounded me or like, like has been like noise in my brain through, through this whole pandemic experience has been, it's been weird how we've taken this kind of national approach to what is a global event, you know, yes. like, 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 like if aliens came to, to our planet, nobody would be asking themselves, but what's the Canada plan, right? <laughs> like, you know, it would be like, Hey, we have this like, you know, a huge global threat. So, 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 so let's come up with, with a global plan. And I think that's a little bit what, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the assembly that, that was created or sorry, the world health assembly, you know, uh, created the, this panel to come up with a report and it was entitled, you know, COVID's, you know, like, like the last pandemic, let, let, let's really try and avoid this. But, but it really focused on, you know, global governance at, as a vehicle for, for, for trying to manage those things. Uh, would we be better off with, with like a global view of this or, or do you still think there's lots to be gained from a national point of view you, you, well I, I mean in theory you, you know absolutely you know if i'm i am emperor of all i, I survey absolutely impanel a, a global a, a global commission and say you know grand scale do everything uh but 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 as a practical matter i i i know I, I don't think so right uh, be, simply because the international organizations are too fragile, too sensitive to political considerations, 
to give it an ambit sufficient to the job. Right. Like I want, I'm thinking about something that has a very big sweeping mandate. Um, and I find it hard to imagine the World Health Organization, for example, ever giving an, uh, ever giving a commission that sort of a mandate. Yeah. Um, but that being said, a, a national commission need not be parochial. A national commission need not keep its focus on the nation. And in fact, it absolutely should not because it's ridiculous to think of viruses in those terms. <laughs> it's ridiculous to think of solar flares in those terms, right? Um, the whole problem of low probability, high consequence events in being an increasing threat is precisely because we are increasing, our societies are increasingly complex and interconnected, right? What happens? In South Africa matters here. What happens in China matters here. We are connected, and it is foolish to simply use national divisions as your arbitrary line and say, we're going to talk about Canada and what Canada did and what Canada can do. That would be a terrible mistake. Um, so, you know, and, and by the way, I, 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 there's there are other uh, organizations underway. And of course, you know, if you if you look at how science is actually done, you know, the United States has a, a, an enormous role here, right? How many how many scientific organizations around the world rely upon the United States and American scientists and American organizations for data for research capacity and so on? It's mammoth. And so, you know, in my talking about Royal Commission in Canada should do this. The other really the giant, the elephant in the room is 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 the United States, and what is the United States doing? And what's really interesting to me and kind of concerning um, is the fact that if you look after nine eleven, it did not take very very long before somebody started saying, "Hey, we need a presidential commission on what went wrong," uh, and they eventually did create a nine eleven commission. And it did very good work, but they did it, as I say, with too much of a narrow focus on well, that went wrong. Um, but what's kind of interesting to me, intriguing to me, and also unsettling, is the fact that I've heard like very, very little about this in the United States, about going back and trying to learn from experience what happened, what, what do we get right, what did we get wrong, how do we improve? And I don't think it's uh, difficult to figure out why we haven't heard that. Um, it's because their politics is, frankly, incapable of that at this at this time the moment you start to say let's impanel a commission to investigate anything in the united states that immediately creates creates a partisan bun throwing match yeah. um you know they, they they were incapable of creating even a panel to investigate the events of january 6th i mean that's that's yeah. truly stunning um uh, and and so so I had this thought, uh, you know, well, what is the American situation? What are the Americans doing about this? And so I, I thought, well, I will contact Philip Zelikow, who is who was the uh, uh, executive director of the 9-11 Commission, um, it, it, because I thought he would have a really, really interesting perspective on this. And so I said, uh, I've spoken with him in the past. Uh, Philip Zelikow is a lawyer. He's a very experienced diplomat. He's also an historian and an extremely thoughtful person, extremely, you know, globally minded, very thoughtful. Um, and so I contacted him and said, you know, are, have you thought about this problem and, and, and how the United States can learn from this experience? And he said, why, indeed, I have. Uh, in fact, at the University of Virginia, they have put together what they call the COVID Commission Planning Group. Um, there is, he has actually created this body, which is now going out 
in contacting scientists to basically lay the groundwork for exactly this sort of investigation. Um, and they're funded by four of the largest foundations uh, in the United States, um, politically politically diverse foundations. Um, and but what he told me something which was frankly uh, really revealing and, and depressing, which it, he basically said that the standard model in the United States for something like this would be to create a presidential commission and make it bipartisan, which is to say you go and you get equal numbers of famous Republicans, equal numbers of famous Democrats, and you put them on the panel. Um, and then you have, of course, a staff that's doing the really hard work <laughs> of the research <laughs> underneath. And he said that, uh, and that's what they did with the 9-11 commission, because that is, is, as they say, the standard American model, because they don't do nonpartisan in the same way other countries do as we do in Canada. They do bipartisan. And he said, basically, uh, in the current environment, that's completely impossible. And so what they're actually doing now is they're actually laying the foundation for something which is almost unheard of in the United States, a nonpartisan commission. And he doesn't know where that's going to go, whether this will be picked up and given a presidential imprimatur, uh, or if this will ultimately be an entirely private and privately funded event. If it is, I mean, that really says something catastrophic about American governance. Um, but it's a, it's a really intriguing, uh, development. That is intriguing. And, and I was going to ask you like, so, so, so if, well, let, let, let me take a step back and say about the United States, the one thing I will say about the United States is that, um, they do have a preparedness culture. I mean, obviously they're human beings and they suffer from the weaknesses of, uh, of all of human psychology and, and they have, you know, uh, a really fractured politics layered on top of that. But, but they do have like, you know, a prep act and BARDA where they're constantly looking at new innovations, um, to deal with, you know, all kinds of, you know, horrific events from chemical warfare to nuclear meltdown to, you know, catastrophic tsunamis. Um, so, 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 so at least they have that, that kind of ongoing bit going, you know, for them in, in, in terms of, of preparedness. And, and I think they, you know, while, while budgets rise and fall, they, they largely continue uh, with, with their work, um, regardless who, who is president. Um, but, but, but getting to the, to this idea of like, the who, right? Like, it's like, okay, a royal commission or a university, um, initiated, uh, you know, large review. Who, like, what, what are the right expertise, you know, to have around the table to look at these types of, of events and, and not just kind of narrowly zero in on the pandemic that just happened? Okay, that's that's you know that's a fabulous question, and 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 I'll I'll be frank, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it because <laughs> no, you know the prime minister hasn't been on the phone asking my advice. So, <laughs> uh, but that being said, you know what I, I would tackle the problem this way, uh, and, and I should alert you, I am in fact writing a new book, and at this very moment I am writing a chapter on what I'm about to describe, and so I'm not entirely sure that it's the right answer for you, but it is what's on top of my mind, so I will give it to you. Um, it is this. When you have an enormous thorny problem like this, I mean, like this is really huge, right? This is really complex. Before you get into the weeds like that, the very first thing I would do is say this. What's the goal? Yeah. Such a clarifying, magnificent, simple little question. 
Um, for the for the purposes of our book, we interviewed Frank Gehry, the architect. Um, and of course, Frank Gehry is you know this magnificent architect. You know, he's a genius, and 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 he's the kind of person who you know you would expect you just give him a blank check and you say, Frank, you know, whatever you want, just build whatever you want. <laughs> for, that's not how Frank Gehry operates. When a client comes to Frank Gehry, he always asks, this, "I love this. Why are you doing this project?" And he starts having a long conversation about the why. Right? What, yeah. what are you trying to get out of this? What's the goal? What's the goal? Um, and so, really, we need to start there. What do we want to get out of whatever the postmortem is, the postmortem analysis? And I would argue, and that's in, in that hub piece, I laid out a few points. I would argue, and this is what I'm urging we don't just want to understand how what we got right and what we got wrong. Uh, and how it could have been done better. That's just step one. I would argue that the goal has to be to do these things uh, and to recognize the fact that preparedness gets hamstrung as time passes. And therefore, we also have to ask, how do we prepare in such a way that it doesn't get undone in, in the future when our sense of alarm has faded? And number three, number two or three or whatever number I'm up to. <laughs> um, so I would also insist, please, please, please. It's not about, as I said, it's not about uh, a COVID-like prepare, better preparing for a COVID-like uh, pandemic. It's not about better preparing for a pandemic. It's better preparing for low probability, high consequence events. And if we have that as the blocks, and you have like that, however many points that is, <laughs> that's a nice, simple, clear, and yet enormous mandate. And then once we have that, once you have that statement, this is the goal, here's what we want to accomplish with this inquiry, then work backwards um, and start to lay out, well, how do we get to that goal? And it's, it'll be like three steps back before you get to, okay, who should the staff be? You know, what sort of expertise which should, we, should we have? But, you know, I can see, just to answer your question directly now that I've dodged it entirely, um, <laughs> to, to at least take a quick stab at it, it has to be, it absolutely has to be completely multidisciplinary, right? Um, it has to be, we're going to start with the virologist, we're going to start with the epidemiologist, but that's not enough. We have to get into the behavioral scientists, right? Mm -hmm. We have to talk about why do people prepare you know, why do the people find it so hard to prepare for things that they know could happen but haven't happened? Um, and, and then we have to start talking about, okay, solutions, right? And, and how do you maintain these things? And, and, and that's not just psychology that I've emphasized here. That's also politics, right? Um, you know, how do we, how do we politics proof our preparedness? Well, then you need some folks who actually understand politics. So you can see how this is going to cover the range. It really has to be that broad. Uh, and and as you say, uh, to, to, to further complicate things, as you say, it cannot be a national inquiry. It is ridiculous to say this is about Canada. This is not about Canada because we live on a planet and we're deeply connected with everybody else. This is about planet Earth and our little patch of it. Yeah. And I think probability analysis would suggest it's probably going to be a climate-related event that we're dealing with yeah. next that obviously doesn't respect borders either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 here's the thing. If you go down the list of, if you, with a little imagination, you to go down the list of the low probability, high consequence events, which could disrupt our life in a big, big way, um, they're not national. They're not local. 
they are they are a consequence in large part, if not entirely, of the interconnectedness of modern globalized life. So if you're going to get serious about talking about these things, and God, we should, then you have to think broader. You have to think global. If you want to talk about protecting Canada, you can't just talk about Canada. It's just that simple. Dan Gardner, thank you so much for your advocacy because I love your ideas and for your time today, uh, just giving me the, this wonderful opportunity to, to probe them uh, more deeply and to better understand them. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jody. It was a lot of fun. That's a wrap for season one of At Risk. To my audience, thanks for coming along for the ride during this year like no other. To the Canada 2020 team, thank you for your expert help and support. With 23 episodes under our belt, we gain both the benefit of perspective and an archive of thoughtful discussions with great Canadians. We've explored together how risk shapes our business, politics, and daily lives, all while navigating a global pandemic. Stay tuned for season two, coming to you September 9th. If you haven't already, please subscribe to At Risk wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review. If you have topics you'd like to hear, let me know. Until then, enjoy the summer and stay safe. Hello, I'm David Moscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. For over a year now, I've been sitting down with guests from the world of academia, journalism, politics, and activism to bring you single-issue current affairs discussions to help make sense of today's politics and policy in Canada and around the world. You and I are friends. We are longtime friends. So the dynamic might be a little different. We might make jokes. A little more vicious, I was thinking. (laughs) Retaining this left-right distinction where one group's ideas, you know, the ideology is correct and your ideas or your ideology is wrong, That's exactly how we continue to talk over a big divide and don't get cohesive action on this problem. I think we need to leave our dogma at the door, and then we may be able to sort of force our politicians to do something. I think it gets much more difficult to ask for help the 10th time or the 12th time or the 20th time, especially for people like you or in worse situations like that really cannot leave their house or do not even have the money or the means to carry out various things. But really what I want is action. Mm. I want people to be engaged. I don't want people to be either panicked or hopeful. I want people to understand that this crisis requires them to do something. And this is a feminist thing, right? Like giving yourself permission to stop with the punishing thoughts of productivity is a radical act of care right now. I think it always has been in capitalism. And I think now we are confronting just how powerful that can be in terms of our mental health. At its core, this podcast is meant to be a space for discussions that are essential to good policy and a healthy democracy. Open to Debate returns this fall. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.